Hello, hello, good morning, good afternoon, good evening, whatever time you're tuning in from, from wherever you are around the world. It's good to see you again. Today, we're doing another podcast episode focused on some of our incredible speakers for the events we have coming up this June. And today, we've got one from a very special location all the way from Johannesburg, South Africa. Today, I'm talking with Dean Broadley, who's the head of product design at Yoko. Did I pronounce that right? Is it Yoko or Yako? Yoko. That's correct. Yoko. Okay, good. Dean, how are you? Yeah, good. Thanks in yourself. Um, I'm hanging in, man. Every day, <laughs> every day I'm hanging in. It's really great to, to be chatting with you today. I'm really excited for the talk that you're going to be giving. But where I'd love to start is, can you paint me a bit of a picture of what the design scene kind of looks like in South Africa and you know how you got your start? Sure. Design in South Africa is, is in very, very interesting space at the moment. We don't have a very large uh, community uh, comparatively to, to other countries. The population is very, very small, so everybody does tend to know each other. I've tried very hard to find new people that I don't know, and I'm still struggling. <laughs> um, but uh, I'm uh, originally from Cape Town, South Africa, um, and now I live in Johannesburg or in Joburg, and uh, I've been here about six years. And I kind of got my start in design. My first design job was when I was 15 doing character design for comic books because I like to draw and apparently I was good at storytelling. So yeah, that's how I got my start. And then there was no kind of product design or UX or service design or any kind of those kind of formal degrees uh, when I was starting out. So I kind of studied communications and marketing and those kinds of things and did some of that work. And then I found some weird, wacky company who would let me sit and work there and learn from them for very little money. I offered to sit there for free, but they did pay me. And we were building interactive learning environments, uh, which is like multi-touch tables and things for aquariums and museums to teach people about specific topics, whether that be frogs or nuclear energy or the history of a country. And that's kind of how I got into the physical and digital product and experience space was through forcing my way into a company and being very annoying. And yeah, and then I kind of moved from job to job. And from there, moved into like big enterprise, ran teams for Barclays Africa and grew a really big kind of design team. Um, and yeah, and kind of moved into smaller companies, mentoring startups, et cetera, through that, that experience. And now I'm doing what I'm doing, trying to help create good, meaningful payments experiences to let people participate in the economy that are currently excluded from it. So that's where I'm at right now. That's amazing. I feel like that first job thing that you were talking about is like a pretty incredible way to kind of get started in design, dealing with like not just digital stuff, not just physical stuff, but stuff that people need to, need to move around, right? And it's not uniform and it's a unique learning experience. Did you realize at the time that that was very distinct from what most people spend their time designing in tech? Um, that's a really good question. I think at the time, I just thought it was really, looked really, really, really cool. I just found some random, like, I think it was a YouTube video of one of the projects this company had done. And then I found their, their kind of like website and just reached out. And at the time, you know, while I was studying, everybody was doing print media and, and kind of like that kind of communication stuff. And I knew that I, I liked it and I enjoyed it and I was good at it um, to a certain degree, but I didn't, it, I always used to say I felt like a freshwater fish in the ocean 
So I could swim, mm. but I couldn't necessarily breathe. So like a lot of felt right, but, I, but some fundamental things felt wrong. Um, and so then, yeah. And then I reached out and I started doing the stuff and then it really did start connecting with the way I saw the world. And also the fact that we were building things that um, were for people to learn about something that is usually hard to learn about. And so then what I did then was I took all the stuff I was learning then, converted all my university projects into I did what I thought would be a digitally based version of that. So if it was a magazine, I made a blog. If it was like a photography thing, I would make like some form of online exhibition. You know, some of the lecturers didn't enjoy that, if I'm frank, because they had a rubric <laughs> and I didn't, I didn't really <laughs> obey the rubric very well. But um, to answer your question, I think, I mean, there were plenty of people that were doing similar things, but not, it wasn't front of mind for me. It wasn't like, you know, there was no trend around it. I was actually, many of my, my classmates well, not many, but a few of them did say that I was doing that so I didn't have to pay for printing. That was why they thought I was doing digital. <laughs> That's really funny. Yeah, I mean, I feel like things have changed a little bit since then. The digital stuff is all the cool stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so you're ahead of the curve, man. That's very good. Tell me a bit about, you know, one of the things that, that you seem quite passionate about is training and learning and community and all that kind of stuff. How did your experience as you moved from that initial job, if you will, or study job thing and hop to a few different places, ultimately ended up ending up where you are now? Like, what are some of the things you picked up along the way that really influenced how you felt about learning in community and the importance of both? So the first thing I would say there is everybody kept telling me no, like I can't do this and I shouldn't learn to code and do design or I shouldn't be doing this. So I should be focusing on X. And that always felt weird to me. Fast forward like 10 years later and everybody was trying to do that. Those same people that were telling me no were trying to do it. And so that was the first signal, not, not 10 years later, but during that process, that was kind of the first signal that I noticed that there is no right way to do many things. And the path that is followed that, you know, the wind, if you follow a winding path, you tend to be a far more interesting meaning, you, you tend to make more meaningful work. And so people who follow a very sequential linear path really struggle. And so what I then noticed when I started running teams and leading teams, no matter who you employ, you tend to find that people are struggling to navigate that where they're going, but I learned this. And what I found is as I've moved through my career and now there's more content available and more kind of established standards, et cetera, I started noticing that those people would struggle more because the, the, the kind of predictable or the best quote unquote best practice kind of field grew, right? But when I was starting out and we were doing things on the web, and you were using Flash and you would make the whole website a ball because it was fun. That was, we had the opportunity to experiment and plan some of that I felt like was getting kind of deleted. And then the other big thing that started like kind of setting off for me is like having permission to be in the space was a big deal for me. So my whole career, I've always been, if, even though I'm in South Africa where we have 95% people of color, I was always the only person of color in my design teams. And that was also one of the things that kind of got, made me go, well, this is a problem. Because then when I had to start growing teams and building scaled like enterprise design teams, there's a very simple macro kind of economic problem there where you're going, I'm fishing from the smallest part of my talent pool comparative to the amount of people available. Therefore, there must be a problem here. And I remember when I was starting out, my dad said to me, I can study anything I want as long as it's called engineer. Um, and... <laughs> Luckily, or unluckily, I'm an incredibly stubborn person sometimes with certain things, and I'm going to be quite defiant. But um, my dad was actually, he's, he's really cool. He came around, he's like, well, as long as you're really good at it, you'll make money. And I was like, cool, that's how I see it too. And so then I started trying to figure out how to tell that story, understand that space a bit more for 
designers in general in the community and seeing, well, why are people, aren't they choosing these specific jobs? What are the value systems that they're, or mental models that they're subscribing to? And, and which of those mental models are tethered to reality and which one of those are not tethered to reality, right? And so I started doing some work with like parents and high, some high schools, et cetera, to try and see, you know, if I can get to the bottom of that story. And yeah, so that's kind of like how I got into that space, right? And like, obviously, when you're running a team and mentoring people or trying to get the best out of people, what I also learned is because South Africa didn't have a lot of or any really formal scale design schools when it came to product design or UX, et cetera, there was a couple of courses here and there and some people would run meetups or whatever. But what that thing told me was... I can't look in one place for people. So I either have to create the place or I have to take from everywhere. And so I did a bit of both, basically. And so my I've never tried to narrow that funnel. I try to keep the funnel as wide as possible because interesting people come from everywhere. So yeah, that's kind of the basics. I think that's that's super neat. It's funny because, you know, me coming up as a as a researcher, it was so normal to see any number of backgrounds or paths, you know, it felt like we all had what we, everybody thought they had a weird path into research. That just was the nature of the field. And it's something that I feel like I've always taken for granted, you know, because, and, and one, it's also been one of the great strengths of the field, right? I've talked to, I was actually talking to somebody recently who I can't remember what exactly her background was, but she was somehow involved with a studying or looking at the design of interrogation rooms, right? And, you know, it was just like, yeah, it really struck me when I started doing usability tests that the setup kind of yeah, <laughs> looked pretty similar. Yeah. <laughs> you know, all the things that were used or designed to intimidate somebody into compliance were, you know, those artifacts were here, yeah. you know, 100%. and I'm like, that is really interesting. You know, that's, that's one of the amazing things when you have all these winding paths into the space. And one of the interesting things that you were saying was because there was no formal uh, approach, there was no like, hey, here's the path into doing this. You know, you had to, you picked up so much, right? And you had to invent for yourself and create for yourself. And clearly that's become a big strength for you, right? Do you, have you thought at all about, you know, obviously as you create more paths that are more navigable for other people, is there a way that we can intentionally kind of keep some of that windiness while at the same time designing something to make it more clear how you can get from point A to point B? Yeah. So I, yeah, so that's a great question. So one of the things I did post-working in enterprises, I did start my own company to try and do some of this stuff. Because I realized when I made, I actually became really good friends with somebody else who's running another enterprise design team. And I, I recognized some stuff in, in his team that we had in our team. And then I was like, oh, wait, is this a fluke? Or is this just maybe this team does that? And then I did some more investigation. I realized, oh, wait, there's a lot of things we're figuring out here that are intentional on, on, on kind of my part in terms of how I went around the team that people aren't kind of figuring out. And so what I tend to do with, with that is just kind of like give you the headline around like how I think about that is there are loads of frameworks or matrices and things about skills that you could do. But what that is for me is the map, right? So you can have a map of South Africa or a map of, of the United States or wherever, but that means there are many destinations and there are many routes to get to the same place. And what people tend to see, look at the map is they look at it as the route. The map isn't the route. It's just mm. the map. And so what I try to do is try to like uh, be very intentional with my teams and the, the people I work with around going, okay, so now let's work on differentiating between the map and the route. And then also being okay with the fact that the route is not linear and straightforward, because that is what's going to make you good, in my opinion, more often than not. If you, if you embrace that kind of like, oh, I'm going to go down here and then you hit a, a roadblock or a dead end, you learn from that, right? If you have a flat, flat tire or wheel, uh, you know, with your car, 
you learn a new skill. Um, I always say most of the time when people ask me things, how I know them is because I broke something somewhere and I had to learn to fix it. It's not because like I went to some special space to go and learn this. Like I just broke things and you need to break things your way and fix them your way to a certain extent so that it becomes part of your muscle memory. And so what I try to do is focus on managing the disc, the inherent discomfort that is with the unpredictable path, but by amplifying, you know, the things that make that person who they are. Um, yeah. So that's kind of like how to get it. I think that's such a wonderful metaphor. I really love that. The, the map is not the route. I'm going to, I'm going to, with, with credit, I'm going to cite that probably 50 times in the next few <laughs> weeks. I think that's, a, that's, that's brilliant. Um, and, and very eloquent because you can actually picture it. You can literally see, you can see that. That's amazing. Tell me a bit about the talk that you're going to be giving at DesignConf and what in, kind of inspired you to put this together. Yeah, I mean, so it's very kind of, it's a great segue because it is very much about the map and the root. And um, some of the principles that I have found that have worked for myself and those people that I've had in my teams when that help people either navigate their careers, but also how do you find and build good human beings that are going to do good design? And the thing that I found also just in my work that I've done and my travels and speaking at all sorts of companies and work, doing workshops with like very big tech companies and realizing that there's, there's a kind of a level of safety and certainty that is not linked to reality a lot of the time, right? So, and what I mean by that is I found people had like a, a rubric in their head again that it was about like, if we get somebody from here or if we do these things in our interview, we will get good designers. And I just don't necessarily think that's 100% true. And I also think that it, it, it kind of starts to narrow the, the entry part of your funnel, your, your, your kind of talent or skills funnel for the human beings you want to add to your team. And it also means you probably end up with pretty much the same, same human being in a different shirt. Um, or maybe they're even wearing the same shirt. But, um, <laughs> the, and and, and uh, one of the things that really, you know, it's, it's something I've spent a lot of time on, both practically and conceptually, and it's actually something that people have also spent a lot of time commenting on, people that have met me or, or come to see work with my teams, et cetera, where they're like, but how did you get all these different people to do really good yeah. design? I said, well, I didn't get them to do it. I just have learned how to find what makes them good at the skills that map to what we pay them for. Because I can't say, okay, cool, well, they've got this checkbox they studied here. They, did, they worked at this company with this logo and this brand. So cool, it's going to be good. And that's really informed my thinking around the content for this talk and just like most of how I see the world. And yeah, so that's kind of like the, the feeder into, into what I'll be talking about is how do you find good humans? How do you build yourself, right? And, and build what I call the meta skills to be a good designer and a good human being. And how do you pass that on to others? Because um, you can't do these things alone. So yeah, and that, that feeds into a whole bunch of other like uh, subtopics around, yeah, just around the concept of Cognitive diversity and just diversity in general of human beings is made a lot easier when you start to look at humans for who they are and not for what you want them to be. Because I have uh, a big trigger for me or a big uh, thing also in my is being told no so much and being denied opportunities because of certain attributes I might have, visual or otherwise, just made me go, oh, this is interesting. I'm going to find a way to still do good at this. Um, and something my grandmother always taught me is that if you make more value that people than people can ignore, they go colorblind. <laughs> so that's kind of like what what kind of uh, yeah, that's kind of the rough outline of what I'll be talking about. That's beautiful, man. 
Yeah, I, I think um, just to piggyback on your point about, you know, understanding what you're interviewing for, uh, one of the things that always surprised me and when people showed me their their interview process for researchers was how intimately tied it was to like whether or not you had done this exact activity at a different company rather than like, do you have the fundamental skills, mm. right? To me, which are strong communication, critical thinking, and um, a knowledge of, you know, tools of the trade, if you will, or methods. And almost very, I don't think I've ever in, in the, a lot of the teams that I've come across, they very rarely actually measured or evaluated those specific things, like the underlying principles, which I've always thought was very interesting and is a sign to me that, that there's not maybe as much craft mastery um, as, as you might think. Because if you really know it, right, you know how to find it, even if it's hidden in different, different yeah. shapes than you might be familiar with. 100%. And you know, you figured out in your career how to figure it out. That's what you want. 100%. You don't want necessarily to be the human being who, quite, quite frankly, I mean, one of, I, I suppose one of the things that's always made me itch a bit is the phrase best practice. And I actually had this <laughs> conversation with my team the other day because somebody said something about best practice. And I asked them, where does best practice come from? Is there a tree that it grows on? Do they mine it? Like, where does it come from? Because it's often quoted and I'm like, but a human being made it through some form of practical finding. Yes. And so if we can understand the bottom part of that iceberg, as it were, and build our own practices, then we focus on excellence and not perfection. So yeah, that's the, the vibe. I, I think that's, I don't know exactly how you're going to tell this story, but ending it with let's achieve excellence and not perfection. Seems like a pretty incredible note to end it on. So <laughs> I don't know if that'll fill into your talk, but it's a great little something right there. So Dean, thank you so much for for sitting down and chat with me today. I'm really excited for your talk. I think it's going to be super informative and um, it's going to be fun to hang out in June. Very much. I'm definitely looking forward and thanks for having me. I look forward to chatting to you in person one day. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Cool. For those of you that are interested in listening to Dean's wonderful insights, uh, there's two ways you can do it. The first, which is absolutely free, is to listen in and watch from the comfort of your own home. That's right. Remote tickets to DesignConf are completely free because we don't believe there should be barriers to learn, so we're not going to make any. You can go to designconf22.joinlearners.com to register for one of those, and information on how to join the stream will be sent to you shortly before the event. But there's another, another option. If you're really excited to hang out with people in person, again, in New York City, yes, you can join us in person at 99 Scott, the venue that we're going to be at in Brooklyn, New York. Again, to go grab a, a spot there, you can go to designconf22.joinlearners.com where you can get an in-person ticket. If you have any questions about group rates or discounts or anything like that, please reach out to me, alec at, at joinlearners.com. Thanks so much for listening in and we'll see you next time.